0: LinkedIn Presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Emil Michael is our guest today. He's the former chief business officer at Uber, and he's the chairman and CEO of DPCM Capital. And Michael joins us at a fascinating moment for the ride-sharing business and the sharing economy overall. Let's start with the fact that Uber is sitting at a market cap of $63 billion, which is less than its last private market valuation, and its share price is trading below its IPO price. And its CEO is giving rides himself to figure out why his company can't recruit drivers. Lyft, meanwhile, is down 87% since its IPO, and its founders just resigned for quote-unquote personal reasons. I mean, come on. Then you look at Airbnb, which has effectively been flat on the stock market since its IPO years ago. And you begin to wonder whether there was a sharing economy at all or whether zero interest rate environment investments from VCs and public market investors have propped up non-businesses this entire time. Well, the answer is not a clear yes, but it's also not a clear no at least for some companies. I discussed this all with Emil Michael, who's had a front row seat to this at Uber and has followed it closely afterwards and I think has some very valuable analysis that you're going to enjoy a lot. My conversation with Emil coming up right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: Emil, welcome to the show. It's good to see you again. It's been a couple of years. Yeah, you were one of the first, we were just talking, you were one of the first guests we've ever had on the show. And it was in the thick of COVID and we were talking about whether people were going to continue to do ride sharing after uh, COVID ended and whether they, people had you know were going to just travel with their own cars. I bought my own car. All right, so I'm doing a lot less. And the businesses have struggled. So actually, it's maybe a pretty good place for us to start. What do you think the rebound from COVID has been like for ride-sharing companies in particular?
2: Well, if you look at the the data, the revenue part of ride-sharing is all the way back and more. However, I think what's buried in there is the price increases have been dramatic since pre-COVID times. If you look at sort of what the same ride cost so the number of rides probably has slowed uh it's still probably growing a bit but uh because the price increases have been material the total revenue has grown contrast that with food delivery which is sort of shot out of nowhere and was bigger during the pandemic for uber for a bit than uh rides and now that's slowed a little bit and rides is taken back over
0: yeah i mean i gotta tell you so i was in san francisco came out of the airport and you know i had been away for a little bit i moved back to new york and I was so used to just getting out of the airport, calling an Uber or a Lyft, going to my house, in the mission, and you know it being a very easy process. The Uber, I might, maybe it was surging or something, it was over a hundred dollars. I had never done this before. I walked down, went to the um, the the black car drivers, and and said, "Hey, can can you take me home?" And we negotiated a price, which was still double what I used to spend, uh, you know, with Uber. But it was also much uh, much cheaper than the Uber prices. Is that? Was that a unique experience, do you think? I know you're not there day to day anymore, but was that unique experience? Or is this sort of the, the, you know, par for the course right now? And if so, what does it say about the long-term trajectory of these businesses?
2: Yeah, so two, so two things are happening. I don't think your experience is unique. Prices are going up uh, for two reasons. Both companies, Uber, Lyft, have said, we got to get profitable. And Wall Street is has said, well, you know, you guys have to get profitable or your stock's not going to move. So them, amongst other tech businesses, have sort of made that move to profitability, which meant raising prices. That's the easiest way to get closer to profitability, right? The second thing that's happened is there have been a ton of taxes, surcharges, uh, fees that cities, states, and localities have added to rides. Um, In California, Prop 22 added, uh, added some costs. So there's two buckets of cost, the profitability cost and and the regulatory uh, cost has added to this. And um, I think that's what you're seeing kind of across the board, across the country, across the world. And what is gonna happen is on the margin, it's gonna make people take Ubers or rideshares less, right? It's like, we learned this very early in, in our time at Uber, price elasticity for transportation is super uh, important. Like you raise the price a dollar, fewer people uh, use it. Just period. So um, I think you're going to end up having slowing growth in the number of riders because of this.
0: Yeah, and there's also one thing you didn't mention is the fact that there's much less drivers are having trouble getting drivers on these platforms. So there's this recent Wall Street Journal article um, with and and we do, we got to talk about it because it has um, it's basically uh, documenting. Uber's uh, CEO Derek Oso-Shao, he's um, moonlighting as a driver with with Uber, and I, I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. So um, this was the first time he's been CEO for a while. This is the first time he's tried to drive Uber, and he's found all these different issues. So he's this this is from the journal uh, story. He struggled to sign up as a driver. He saw firsthand something called tip baiting, and was punished by the app for rejecting trips. Uh, surprisingly hard to take was the rudeness of some riders. Um, it, and they say that it's part of a campaign by him and his lieutenants to better understand and improve Uber's experience for drivers whose scarcity has become a critical challenge for the company in the U S which think about supply and demand. I think that's probably one of the issues. And here's one of the uh, amazing lines from the story. He hadn't driven on Uber before because it wasn't his biggest priority drivers had always been in abundant supply. And it's one of those interesting profiles where it's like you have access. So you're trying to be nice to the guy, but like as it continues to reveal details through the story, you're like, is this person really an effective leader? So, you know, I'm curious hearing, hearing about this. Was this a practice that that you guys did when, when you were at Uber during the Travis era and, and had you been driving uh, Ubers, had Travis been driving Ubers not to, you know, too deep into that because i feel like that's been talked about to death but i'm curious when you see a ceo try you know driving for the first time this many years in and finding all these these issues what does that mean
2: i'd be surprised if that's the first time he's driven but yeah we used to drive all the time we used to i think travis used to do halloween i would do a weekday night and the product managers would do it all the time um we had a program that at uh, asked all employees to try to do it once a year all of them not just product managers including engineers so that they could feel the experience um so that would that would that's surprising uh, that your biggest product uh, uh, would be something that you didn't experience um and shows a little bit of distance between the product you're building for billion, millions of people around the world, and, and your effective uh, ability to effectively lead a company that's supposed to do that. Um, that being said, they did make a a lot of product decisions in the last couple of years, which I think have been a big mistake to both the driver experience and the and the user experience. And maybe they're figuring those out now. I don't know, but we've never had plentiful drivers. That's not true. Mm-hmm. There's always been a supply constraint on average at Uber. Um, all the time. It's because demand is, it was, you know, was always rising faster than supply. So I don't, again, that that's a, that's an interesting quote that I wouldn't have predicted.
0: Yeah. And you know, I guess I kind of give him credit for, for, I mean, the, the knock on him is fair that it took this long for him to get into the product and start doing this. I give him credit for starting to implement some fixes. The, the, the article really gets very interesting when he starts doing delivery. Um, so, he finds all these problems in the app that they, I guess, confess to the journal and, you know, I guess it's good and transparent, but it was just astonishing to me how many glaring problems that they found. Let me read a little bit more. So this is again, Dara going (laughs) through the delivery experience. I guess I shouldn't laugh. It's good that he's trying it out, but there's something comical about the whole situation. So here it is. So one time he clicked on the notification and the app started navigating him to a new address, hiding directions for the current order. New orders are now queued after existing orders, even if drivers click on them. Okay, so that's a change that he made. So information about the current one isn't lost. On another occasion, Mr. Cossessari, um showed up to a restaurant to pick up what he thought was one order, only to learn that it involved two separate deliveries. Uber was combining orders along the same route, but the app didn't make that clear. So now the company is introducing better labeling for trips that involve one more than one delivery. He also ran into a problem. This is an interesting one. He also ran into a problem. Delivery drivers had been complaining about tip baiting. Customers would entice workers to pick up their food quickly by entering big tips on the app, but then reducing them after the food was delivered. And they're trying to work on fixes for that as well. I mean, that's really disgusting for people to do that, um, to delivery drivers. But so what do you think about all these problems that, that he's finding in this service? And also, what do you think about the fact that it's kind of taking the CEO to actually do this and sort of, um, you know, force down changes, you know, down the org. It doesn't really uh, speak to the strength of his lieutenants, I guess.
2: It's, what's baffling to me is that it's, all, it's been almost six years, right? So this is not one year into ten, uh, one's tenure. And it just baffles me as to, you know, th- this is the core of a product manager's job what is going on in the product management part of this company? Um, like, you, There's those TV shows, the undercover boss things, which yes. are kind of, you know, a, a boss goes undercover in his own company. He's like, holy holy crap, what's going on here? And he comes back up. Um, this is sort of so surprising and, uh, that uh, it's hard to put into words. But But if you look at what Expedia was when he ran Expedia, um, and you try to translate that into the mobile world, where it was just sort of a lot of pop-ups and, and things that weren't designed for a consumer um, to sort of easily understand what's happening on. And in this case, drivers and delivery people are consumers of the platform, too. They're users of the platform as well, so you have to make them happy. It's sort of a jumbled kind of mess. And uh, there was a lot of tweets the other day about some of the messiness in the Uber uh, apps as well and i just i just think there's no fundamental design point or principle in the apps themselves that are organizing how new features are pushed out it's just feature on top of feature on top of feature and then they start conflicting with each other so as to make the thing unusable so I, I, again if i were him i'd go right to the product management team and, and some heads would probably roll
0: yeah so uh there is 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 Widely um, viewed positively, I think, by the public. Do you think he's getting a pass? I'm kind of curious, like, what you think about the public perception of him now that... Well, let me even read... All right, I'm going to go read the stats because I have it here on what, what the situation is with Uber. So the market cap is um, $62 billion. Last private valuation was $76 billion. It's trading at $31 a share. It was priced at 45 at the IPO. With that in mind, rate the leadership.
2: Look, it's the tail of the tape, right? Warren Buffett, the stock price is a, is a voting machine. And over the long term, it's a weighing machine. It's been six and a half years. Stock price is below the IPO. The stock price today at $31 is where it was in 2014. So you're almost a decade of a of flat stock price, right? Um, and you could argue sort of whatever. Travis and I had left him had some had challenges that he did work out, and he was a better diplomat and um, sort of was someone who the press liked a lot more. Um, but I'd say that likability and effectiveness are separate things. Ideally, you want to be both. Um, he clearly ranks high in the likability um, a score, but from an effectiveness standpoint, if you're measuring by stock price, um, that that's been uh, you know, a D right a D my, mi- you know, a D minus even when you compare it to the NASDAQ or other tech stocks. Now, the one other thing I'll mention is behalf just to be, you know, to be fair, he's done better. Uber's done better than Lyft. Uber's oh, done better yeah. than Grab. You're getting
0: right into my next questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uber's done better than Didi. Uber has not done better than DoorDash. DoorDash has whooped Uber on food delivery in the U.S. Um, so, the, that's the mixed bag on that, but stock price is really the summation of all of it. And, and I think Keith he says he's disappointed in it. I'm, I'm not sure why Wall Street isn't, uh, you know, asking for more
0: radical change there. Interesting. What do you mean by more radical change?
2: Well, usually, you know, when you have a stock price that's languishing as this has, and you, you promise, well, here's what we're going to do, and 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 it's not achieved. What happens is, you know, you have some change in incentive structures, right? I, I was looking at the, the 10K just came out, the annual report for 2022. Stock price was down in 2022 by 20%. All the executives, all of them, made 200% of their target bonus.
0: Hmm. That like, doesn't seem right.
2: Doesn't seem right. Is, well, incentives are obviously not working. So the public shareholders suffer; the management team wins. That that misalignment is something that yes, should the board be fixing that, and should investors be pressuring alignment there? Yeah, I think I think that's a that's one easy fix, right? Um, whose head rolled when they lost the food delivery war to DoorDash? Um, what's going to happen with all these product uh, issues that were found? Who's going to be responsible? For those things um, so accountability i guess is what i think the key thing that's missing not just in uber but in a lot of public companies when management gets
0: entrenched okay so speaking of accountability and speaking of uber's ability to uh or the fact that it has crushed lyft um there has been some accountability there now the reports are that these founders are they left to go spend time with their families or do personal reason stuff it's amazing to me that people today are um are even venturing those type of excuses when you know that the business has performed miserably and this is almost certainly a business-related change. I mean, the um, the numbers for Uber are not great. The, the numbers for Lyft are downright embarrassing. Um, Lyft is down 87.96% since it's open. Um, they definitely had the likability thing going. I spent time with uh, John Zimmer, who's one of the founders and one of his, a couple times actually, I went with him when he was driving himself on New Year's uh, and and sort of getting firsthand experience with the product. I thought he was a good guy. I mean, I do think he's a good guy, but obviously the management has not been there for Lyft. You, I think you had a tweet saying that you're expecting the price to go effectively to zero or something like that. So talk a little bit about the Lyft, the challenges that Lyft has had, why you think those founders are out and where you think that company is going.
2: Yeah. So let us be very clear. So here's another stat that's really important here. Lyft in its lifetime, including its IPO, raised $8 billion, and they're worth today $3.5 billion. So they're worth a fraction of the amount of money they raised. So it's been like WeWork raised all this money and it's worth less than that. That's not the case at Uber, but that is the case of Lyft, and that's a big thing to consider. Uh, the other thing to note, though, that's, I think, not intuitive, Alex, is the founders, before they went public, got voting control of the company. So they didn't have to go hmm. if they didn't want to. Maybe they were pressured, but ultimately it was their choice to go because they could have voted to keep themselves in. Um, I think you know what happened there is, this is my guess, right? Earnings are about to come out in early May for Q1. My guess is those are going to be a disaster for Lyft. They're going to show real problems. And they didn't want to be responsible for that, so they put some someone new in. He'll take the heat and say, well, you know, I'm new here. Give me another quarter or two, um, and then also when they're on the board and not management team, they have better ability to sell their shares. So I think this is a bad sign for the whole company. Um, and I said five dollars a share, plus or minus. Right. Um, and today it's it's uh, it's about nine dollars a share. So we'll see what happens in a month. I said May. Yeah, you, know, you could hold me accountable for that. But but here, we always knew this was going to happen on Lyft, and I'll tell you why. Um, and it's not because they're they were uh bad leaders or whatever it's just the nature of ride sharing is that it has a local network effect the more riders you have on your platform the more drivers want to be on that platform because they get rides quicker shorter distance between rides the shorter distance between, between rides the lower price you can you can charge consumers uh, per ride and and the the, the more drivers make cuz they're taking more rides that was always going to work in a zero interest rate environment until a zero interest rate environment was over when there was no more cash and you start to have to make money. Then you can't subsidize the riders and drivers anymore. And market share was going to start to go to 90, 10. And that's where it's headed in might view.
0: Yeah. He, he always talked to me that he, he envisioned that ride sharing networks would be like mobile networks where you have a Sprint and a Verizon, for instance, and you decide which one you want to use you're shaking your head.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a nonsense analogy in that (laughs) you're like, you you know, they're totally separate networks. One's not dependent on the other. Whereas the more people and drivers on a ride-share network, the more valuable it is. It's more like a telephone network being more valuable the more people that are on it. That's not the case with mobile because a Verizon customer can call a T-Mobile customer. That doesn't change sort of the value of either's network. Um, maybe that's why they didn't succeed is because they don't really understand the, the basic tenets of of network effects in business. I don't know.
0: That seems like one one candidate. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also been this. <laughs> there's been this um, talk, and we talked about it last time you were on, but it's worth updating now that that self driving would come in and kind of save the business. I mean, that's basically all John was talking about was how close we were to self driving. This was 2015, 2016, I think. Uh, we're in 2023. And we're not there yet, so how bad has the fact that self driving is not available yet uh been for these companies' business and their ability to prosper?
2: you know I st- and I still think we're seven to ten years away from material percentages of cars being self driving on the road right? uh Travis and I always disagreed on the timeline on this. both companies I feel
0: like it's always seven to ten years. It's always seven to ten years It's long. always always
2: seven to ten years away, right both companies spent a lot of money on this but it was never going to be the savior i think for for both uber and lyft it was a defense against waymo and google mm-hmm. the fear was that if we didn't do self driving and google did and deployed it fast well that would eat rideshare so we had to be in both camps so we weren't disrupted it was a it was more defense than offense um, the thing i found really strange about lyft's strategy here um, is that they, they did this ballot initiative in 22 to raise taxes for electric cars, which that was going to save them somehow too. So sort of these weird Hail Marys that they were doing instead of expanding into food delivery or to Europe for rides, they're focused on autonomous and on electric vehicles, which I just think were bad, bad business choices.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to say for the record, before we move on, John Zimmer, uh, I've been uh, trying to get you on the show a couple of times. Sent you an email. Uh, you have an open invite, and even though I'm not at Buzzfeed anymore, I hope we can still talk. So, <laughs> just making it known.
2: Yeah. Well, look, he's a, he's a, everyone says he's a nice guy. Dara's a nice guy. You know, behind the scenes, John, I've, I've tangled with him a few times. He's he's pretty. You know, he has his moments as well.
0: Yeah. Well. Okay. Hopefully, John, you come in. We we can yeah, talk about he it. Comes. So let's talk a little bit. You brought up zero interest rate policy, which is something that I wanted to talk about. So, I mean, how does, because these companies have been subsidizing, like you mentioned, drivers and riders for so long. And of course, when interest rates were zero, you could lose money or be break even and the market still loved you when they looked at growth. So I'm very curious to hear from your perspective, how the raising of interest rates has changed the nature of the business for these companies, because you can't take those shortcuts you used to anymore and get the same benefits.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super simple. And uh, the way we Chavisani used to describe it, you're like at some day there's going to be a musical chair and, um, and, and there's going to be one less chair. And if you've been betting on zero interest rate environments and your ability to raise money and subsidize and subsidize and subsidize and not doing the efficiency thing, it's going to, when, when that breaks, you're going to break. The valuation multiples were getting pumped because there was so much money in the system and you don't want to mess miss the next big thing, and entrepreneurs were rightly saying, "Okay, I, what am I going to do with this money? I got to spend it so I don't get smaller than the next guy or gal." Um, so that ethic was a ethic about who could grow faster, which was again, you have to play the game on the field. Now that that's changed, uh, and those multiples are come down, and some some sense of rationality's entered into the picture, which is well. I can invest in treasuries and get a 6% year-over-year return, or I can invest in Uber stock, Stock, and if that does not grow 6% year-over-year or 10% to account for the risk, well, why am I putting my money there? And then the money flows out from an Uber stock to there. So then your ability to spend money and raise it without being diluted is changed. So it's sort of a very natural reaction, especially in tech, which was inflated beyond almost any other
0: sector in the economy. So, the knock against these companies has always been that they're just you know v c subsidized carpool rides, <laughs> and when that when the you know the band stops playing, that's gonna be the end of these businesses. I mean we're starting to see that it's made it harder for them to operate i got i got I've got you shaking your head again, so clearly you have a rebuttal here, so what is it
2: no no i i was gonna was gonna i was gonna add context to what you said, okay. which is you are right that those were VC dollars subsidizing it but you had to do that cuz if you didn't the other company was going to do that. But our theory of the case was we will subsidize as long as we have to and as long as the money is available and then when it comes down to it the bigger party is going to win when there's no more money available. And that's what I'm saying is is happening today. The bigger party because of the dynamics of the rideshare market is gonna win and it can be highly profitable. Um, and that's what I think is
0: gonna happen. And You're just out of the 10K, what's the profitability profitability picture for Uber right now?
2: If you're using normal accounting metrics.
0: Let's try that. Uh, <laughs> um,
2: if you start there, it's losing a couple billion dollars a year still. Um, now, to be fair, a lot of that is because of the stock they hold in Didi and Grab and some of these other uh, rideshare companies around the world. Those are marked to market every year or quarter, so depending on how, you know, it's not really a cash cost to Uber's balance sheet. So if you strip that away, um, then you know they're still losing money, um, especially you know you know to the tune of probably a billion dollars a year. They're paying, I think last last year they paid you know one or two billion in stock based comp, which is another kind of current trick that tech companies are using. And taking out of EBITDA. So adjusted EBITDA doesn't include all the money you pay your employees anymore. um, Which is something that I don't think clouds the picture a bit.
0: Yeah. Um, One more question about these companies. And I think we're going to start to cover some other stuff. But uh, you mentioned DoorDash has given Uber a run for its money. Or I think you said that they whipped them in North America. What has been the secret to DoorDash's ability to do so well? Tony Jew
2: is an entrepreneur, um, not sort of a, you know, caretaker, diplomat type CEO. So he is in the product. There's 0% chance and my, I don't know, Tony, <laughs> yeah. 0% chance he hasn't made deliveries on DoorDash frequently to see what that experience is like. So they've just innovated. Some of the innovations they've done that are really material. Dash pass a huge innovation, right? It, it, because... People were ordering so much food during the pandemic that if you could sign up for this 999 subscription plan and have free deliveries, it was a deal all day long. And then why would you use Uber Eats? So the loyalty they got with that, they're way ahead of Uber by years on that piece. Smart. Second thing is suburbs. They went to the suburbs faster um, and they were the only party out there for a long time. Because remember the old Grubhub? Grubhub was like dense urban areas. They went and attacked a new market in the suburbs again during the pandemic. Super smart move. Um, And then third, they did this brilliant thing where it's called over the top. So turns out that when any human opens a food delivery app, and we learned this at Uber, they want to see as much variety as possible. Even if they know they want Chinese, they want to know there's Italian, they want to see seven Chinese restaurants. So DoorDash saw this early. So what they did is they went to every Chinese restaurant in town. And they just put their menu on the app, whether or not they had a deal with the restaurant and they would pay retail for it. And so you ordered it, the customer gave it. And then at the end of the month, the sales guy would call this Chinese restaurant and say, Hey, do you know we bought you $2,000 of business this month? Or you want to sign up? So, you know, they sort of hacked the the variety problem and it was an incredibly smart move.
0: Yeah. we have uh, Ron John Roy comes on every, for Margins comes on every Friday. And he wrote this story about his uh, friend who owns a pizza place. I'm sure you've seen this story. And they realized that DoorDash had put their restaurant on the app, but like marked up the pizza. So yeah. they just kept ordering pizza on DoorDash and then <laughs> right, pocketing right. the difference. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. one 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 big picture question, then we'll go to a break. Sharing economy. This was the hottest thing about 10 years ago people could not stop talking about the sharing economy sharing your cars sharing your house with airbnb i heard people talking about sharing lawnmowers uh whatever it might be through an app where is that promise gone because we've talked about the struggles for for lyft and uber already right now i mean uber might have a path seems like it's in better shape than than lyft but also still not profitable and then airbnb has effectively been flat on this on the stock market and has its own well documented Struggles. So, I, I think you're coming at this from a perspective where, okay, you're probably going to say no, but I want to hear your your thoughts anyway on this. Why why isn't the sharing economy looking back something that was completely overblown and actually, in reality, has not measured up to the hype?
2: I think that the sharing economy, if you kind of look back on it, should have only applied to high cost assets. Right. So asset like a home, a car, when you start applying it to lawnmowers, you know, the transaction costs don't make sense. Right. So so we were how many times do you see we're gonna be the Uber for massages, the Uber for lawn, you know, dry cleaners, the Uber for this, that? It went so down the line mm-hmm. because people were like, I want the convenience of Uber, so let's call it the Uber of this. And I'm not using my lawnmower all the time, so why don't I rent it out? But you're like, Yeah, but someone has to drive 20 minutes to borrow your $150 mail or drive back. And, you know, the economics just don't make sense. So um, I think it was overblown because it was applied to everything as applied as opposed to being applied to the things where it makes clear economic sense. Homes, cars. There's actually a, a company called Equipment Share that does farm equipment where the equipment's actually really expensive and they have a sharing platform and it works, right? so. Hmm. Um, there are categories where it makes sense to do that, uh, but but the world applied it to everything. Just like every every hype, AI is now apply. What shouldn't we apply AI to right now? Brick making, I don't, you know, I don't know. Pick your, pick your thing that it you're it, right? it's sort of the it is the natural hype cycle, um, and then now we're in the hangover period on it.
0: Emil Michael is here with us. He's the chief uh, former chief business officer at Uber, chairman and CEO of DPCM Capital joining us here on Big Technology Podcast, talking about the sharing economy, Uber, Lyft, and all that stuff. Well, he mentioned AI, so we're going to talk about AI and what it's like to invest for him when we're not in zero interest rate days anymore. More on that when we come back right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days.
2: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to...
0: If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Emil Michael, the chief, the former chief. I should have written former in the notes here. The former chief business officer at Uber and the chairman and the CEO of DPCM Capital, Emil. Emil. Great to have you with us. So, okay. So obviously we're not applying AI to brick making, but (laughs) this technology is going to be undeniably disruptive. I think that your perspective is, you know, given the way that you talked about it before the break, that people are blowing it a bit out of proportion. So I'm curious where you see the actual action happening on this front. Um, What makes you excited about it and where you think people should kind of chill out?
2: Yeah. So, um, I am trying to be more sober about it just because, you know, all the companies I advise and I, I invest in, what do I do about AI? And just like self-driving cars, like there are some things that will happen quickly with AI and there are some things that will take a long time for AI to impact or disrupt. And so let's just be, be thoughtful about that, right? Um like you don't need to go build your own LLM as a, you know, um, as a, uh, someone who sells expense management software just yet. Let's, let's, let's just see what, let's, let's like think about where this is going to be applied. So I'm a believer that AI is going to change the world in lots of ways, going to change learning, healthcare, even uh, dating. I think it's going to change because to be able to match people better is mm-hmm. a lot of dramatic changes going to make. Um, I do not have a fully formed opinion where all the rents are going to go to the big tech companies, or is there going to be an ecosystem around the tech that allows other companies to thrive like the iPhone app uh, ecosystem did? Because when you stick LLMs in, in, into Bing, into Google, into Office, just like you stuck Alexa and Siri into all these things, does it just become a component of everything that exists today? And therefore, the big tech companies sort of take, get all the value out of it uh, or not. I, I don't know yet. Um, so that's sort of, you know, something I'm concerned about. But the but the, but the the valuations you're seeing now are exactly what the valuations you saw <laughs> for the sharing companies back oh, yes. then. And that's it still might be a smart bet, net net for a VC, but that you're seeing that bubblicious environment happening there as well,
0: right? Right. And we we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, but it is very interesting where you get into this place where with the iPhone and apps, at least okay, the iPhone was the operating system. The apps were distinct. You weren't in the same user interface when you, you were using the apps versus using the app using iOS. I mean, even though you were on iOS, you were in the app. But when you're using something like a chat GPT, you're you know, going to be in that same user interface as you would be with the apps. And if the AI gets better then it sort of you know, throws the whole value of building on top of it into question.
2: Right, so then you're like, well, can you build a data set to the side that uses both in some way? Like if they take medical information, could you take the Mayo Clinic's whole database mm-hmm. of all the outcomes they've had, of all the treatments that they've had since the beginning of time, and have that be something that's proprietary to them, but use everything else that's on the internet to combine the two, to get, you know, sort of a worldwide, um, you know, uh, uh, trial of certain drugs or procedures and get better answers faster. Is there a way to do that? That would be interesting if there were, cause then, then you could have companies innovating around it, not just getting subsumed by it.
0: Yeah. And it goes back to like, well, I think what's happened with the evolution of technology recently, which is that, Um, you almost get all the consumer applications, uh, you know, set by the big companies. And then there's places in the enterprise field, in like places like medical, where you can build something with value. So for instance, Character AI, which is one of those companies that raised 150 million on no revenue at a billion dollar valuation, one of those bubbleicious companies that you refer to. Why can't, you know, a user then go into one of these big chatbots and instead of Chat wanting to chat with one of the characters from Character AI, just say, "Okay, ChatGPT, you're George Washington right now." You don't necessarily need a billion-dollar app to create that functionality. You can just instruct the big bots to figure it out.
2: Yeah, I mean, so those, are, you know, I'm not enough of an engineering. No, uh, I don't have enough engineering know-how to know, um, you know, how that will work. And can you do it better outside? Or, you know, but uh, these are all important questions. I do think there are some scary AI questions, not to be the doomsdayer here, but I was mm-hmm. with Eric Schmidt the other day and we were talking about it. And obviously he spends way more time thinking about this stuff. And I was like, what's your greatest fear? He said, well, what if you could subsume all the physics papers that have ever been written and that teaches Iran or North Korea how to make a nuclear bomb? Or you could uh, you do the same thing for viruses or to the Chinese or some adversary can use um, their own version of AI to spit answers out that are propagandizing our our, our, you know, our citizens and you are know, worried about sort of the dark uses of that, that can happen today uh, and fast. And there's no way to regulate this stuff very easily outside of our own borders, much less in our own borders.
0: Yeah, and Schmidt right now is even working on some warfare projects or AI Projects meant to counter China. So do you guys speak about that at all?
2: We do. Um, We spoke about it a lot because the Chinese for years have been investing a lot of manpower on this problem. And it's been state-directed, fund, state right? Hmm. Where we have four companies that have been doing off their own balance sheet this stuff, more or less. Um, And so we talk a lot about, oh, can we get the four companies to agree that you can't, you know, you can't uh, chat GBT how to make a bomb, and it gives you a clear answer. And so can we get our four companies to agree? And I, and I said, Eric, well, yeah, that's great. We get our companies to agree, but how do you get the Chinese to not have their capability available to some some lone wolf in our country to learn how to make a bomb? And there's no answer to that just yet.
0: Yeah. So are, are you investing in any of these companies or looking into them? What's your What's your... Exposure to them as an investor. I mean,
2: as a limited partner, a bunch of VCs. I'm, I'm kind of have some exposure through those things. Directly, not yet, because I'm so flummoxed by the by how the ecosystem and how it's going to work just yet. Um, and, and to be honest, I'm not in San Francisco, and this is not this is happening in San Francisco, right? Not in Miami right now. Um, it's the first time I was like, huh. It's like you know that is the density of San Francisco engineering talent is allowing that to progress in that city more than any other city in the world right now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So you're the um, third investor that we've had on the show in recent weeks talking, that have discussed this type of uh, topic. Joe Marchese and and Mike McNano were on from uh, Human Ventures and Lightspeed a little bit ago. And they were also like talking about just the struggle to figure out what's investable here. Yeah. So what, yeah, what are you investing in? these days are looking at,
2: you know, I, I started, I, you know, slowed slash stopped investing directly, um, probably, you know, mid 21, um, just because, you know, I'd made a lot of investments and I just, at some point got, I the the web three stuff was so nuts in terms of my inability after being in technology for 25 years. I was like, my brain's going to break because I must not be understanding this. Like, maybe I'm too old now, right? And it was, like, you know, Uber I don't think that was blockchain. It.
0: What? Yeah, I don't think that was it. I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of it was built on a, you know, inflated dreams of what could be versus yeah. what was. So then I said,
2: I must be. I, I need to go reeducate myself and, you know, go hang out with a bunch of young people to just understand what I'm missing. Um, so I stopped investing that, and it was turned out to be a smart decision, at least with that wave of companies that had come out yes. there. Um, but now I'm, I'm kind of more excited about, I've never been excited about enterprise software, but now I'm kind of more excited about it these days, not because it's steadier, but just because uh, there's a lot of innovation happening in this stuff. And I do think AI as applied to enterprise is going to be clear money makers um, mm-hmm. And so I'm looking for companies that are doing stuff in that way, and uh, that's what I like. I'm I'm a little worried about emerging markets right now because of currency devaluation, mm-hmm. um, especially in Latin AM because of political instability. Um, so you know I'm kind of keeping it enterprise and keeping it keeping
0: my eye open on AI stuff right now. Interesting. Okay, let let's end with this this uh, part of the discussion because you brought it up and we have to talk about it. Man, I think two years ago, I couldn't, you know, go five minutes without hearing about how Miami was the new capital of tech. I mean, it's it's died down a little bit, but, you know, living there and saying what you've just said about AI in San Francisco, what's your perspective on the state of that city?
2: So, you know, I love this city. I've been here five and a half years before sort of the pandemic rush. So I came to know it before it had um, started to attract a lot of the the people it did. I'm excited that it has. I do think there has been an outflux from New York, LA, Miami, from VCs, hedge funds, some founders, some people, some technology folks who want the lifestyle here, but the remote work sort of revolution allowed them to be here in a place they wanted to live. I still think there's a dearth of engineering talents here that'll mm-hmm. be um, a, a a leading indicator as to when Miami can build its own startups. There are a few great startups here that are homegrown and have engineers here. Lula, Papa, um, GoPuff, sort of essentially headquartered here. So you have three or four companies that make it, then, you know, could it be like New York or Austin in terms of the outcomes in a couple of years? Yeah. San Francisco still, still is a five X from any other city in the country in terms of the density of talent um, and the speed of money, talent um, and ideas. So I love it here. I'm, a, I'm friends with Keith. I like him a lot. I love that he's boosting it. I agree with him that Miami's increased its relevance in the tech world by a factor of five, but there's still another factor of five to yeah. go to get to to be on the same tier um,
0: as these other places. Okay. And before I let you go, so you said you took a break, you wanted to study what the Web3 stuff was all about. What did you conclude there? Because you seemed fairly happy that you didn't invest.
2: <laughs> I mean- I concluded that that there are use cases for a blockchain. If you think about a blockchain as a as a network that um, you know doesn't have human intervention, so has an unbiased way of delivering um, um, information, data, uh, or property from one place to another, and securing it in that way, right? You know, I, I was talking to a company that was doing. You know, wanted to use blockchain for, for home titles. How do you trade home titles? Now it's like a little piece of paper, you go to the county recorder's office. Why shouldn't that all not be electronic? Or you sell a car and you know you just send the title over. It doesn't have to be blockchain. You know, you can argue with that, but the, the notion of a network where property is traded makes sense. The notion of the 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 shit coins, okay. I think we all agree. Like we were like, I don't know what was happening there. People were bored in their mom's basement. You know, trading.
0: When you call it shitcoin just to begin with, I mean, it seems like the answer is in the question right there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, no. So, what I, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about what Bology says and how he thinks about Bitcoin and why it's different. And it has proven to be somewhat different than everything else. Um, But so there are parts of it I I get, um, but there's parts of it that are proven to be non utilitarian, there's no use case for them.
0: Right, so you're not taking that billion. What is the million dollar bet that Balaji was making?
2: Oh, they, that that bet was a bet on on the Fed's hyperinflation. What he right. believes are hyperinflationary policies, right?
0: Yeah. I, are you on board with that?
2: I don't know there's 60 days left in the bet. I'd, I'd Seems take like those he's odds. Lose. I'd yeah. take those odds. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the hyperinflation was defined by, but my recollection is I'd probably take that bet, a friendly bet because I like Balaji.
0: Okay. Emil, thanks so much for joining. Great to speak with you as always. All right. Good to see you. Awesome. Take, care. take care. And that'll do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Emil, for coming your second time here on the show, which is awesome. This was super fun. I appreciate you being candid. Speaking about the issues, thank you, Nate Gwotny, for handling the audio. Special shout out for Nate. You know, I've been working with Nate for three years. And uh, if you're looking for a podcast editor, I highly recommend Nate. Just uh, get in touch with me, BigTechnologyPodcast at gmail.com, and I'll put you in touch with Nate. Thank you, Nate, as always. Thank you also to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network, and thanks to all of you, the listeners. A special treat for you coming up this Friday. Jim McKelvey, who's the co-founder of Square and currently the founder of Invisibly. We've had him on the show before. He's going to come on the show with Ron John and I to discuss the current state of the economy, looking at the Fed, looking at what some people are calling a credit crunch and much more. So stay tuned for that. That'll be 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on LinkedIn and also here on the feed if you miss it. So stay tuned. Jim McKelvey coming up Friday, and I'll be back next Wednesday with my standard flagship interview with Congressman Ro Khanna talking about his trip to Taiwan. Excited to bring that to you. Excited that you're here. Appreciate you listening as always. Thanks again. And that will do it for us here on this edition of Big Technology Podcast.